Matthew chapter 1, beginning at verse 18 through verse 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, desired to put her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for that which has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and ye shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, that what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled, saying, Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph arose from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took her as his wife and kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. As we began to look at the book of Matthew last week, we noted the incredible ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ. The amazing thing is that in in his true humanity, which is what the ancestry of Christ is, it is filled with sinners and even notable sinners, even the wicked, we, we saw. But the scripture affirms, like we testified, what Christians have believed for centuries when we recited the Nicene Creed. Jesus is the God-man, very God of very God, and yet he is a true man. In one person forever. His divine nature, we have said, oversees his human nature, keeping it from sinning. The Messiah, as prophesied in the word of God, he was to be from both the seed of Abraham and from the seed of David. As being from the seed of Abraham, through that promise, that prophetic promise in the scriptures, through that seed, the scripture says in the Abrahamic covenant, that coming seed of Abraham would be a blessing to the entire earth. That that seed would be numerous as the stars of the heavens and as the sand of the seashore. But that seed, which we saw in Galatians 3.16, is said not many seeds, but one, namely Jesus. Through Jesus, blessing has come to planet earth. He is the Savior of the world, of all his people. As the seed of David, he was born a king. He is presently reigning as a king over the entire universe. The Father said in Psalm 2, I've installed uh, my son, uh, my king, on Mount Zion. I've given the nations as his inheritance. And when Jesus came... After his resurrection uh, to his disciples in Matthew 28, he says, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and disciple the nations. I will be with you always. Our King Jesus reigns right now, subduing the world uh, to his purposes. Let me say at the outset that some well-meaning Christians, as you know, 
don't like the doctrine of predestination. If there is anything that unquestionably affirms the doctrine of predestination, it is prophecy. Years ago, it just dawned on me in studying through this, prophecy by its very nature affirms predestination. Now, why do we say that? Well, prophecy, is it not a prediction of a promise that God has made that God guarantees must come to pass? Not maybe, must come to pass. If it doesn't come to pass, Exactly as God prophesies, and God is a liar, God ceases to be God. The whole universe enfolds. Of course, God is not a liar. He's not a man like us, the scripture says. Whatever he says will come to pass. So prophecy, by its very nature, affirms predestination. It means that something that God has said in the past will assuredly come to pass in the future, and nothing will stop it. No power on earth. The devil himself and all of his minions, they can't stop it. And so it is glorious to see how God the Father brings to pass his prophetic promises. Not one, not one of those promises will ever fail. Circumstances, no matter how bleak they may appear, can't stop prophecy. When God promised that his people would be enslaved in Egypt for 400 years, he says, I will deliver them. They will be there for 400 years. From our perspective, that is a long, long time. And they suffered under uh, the tyranny of the pharaohs, century after century. But did God forget? No. He raised up Moses in a, in, a, in a marvelous way. And as my wife and I have been reading through Genesis and that thing, or now in Exodus, you know, it's an amazing thing when uh, Pharaoh wanted to destroy uh, all the male children because of fearing of how numerous the uh, Hebrews were becoming. And uh, some were saved. And the mother of Moses put that boy in a basket and sent it down the Nile. Not knowing what would ever happen. But sent someone to say, well, you see where it goes? If there was ever a, a, a giving someone a fighting chance, there it was. But this child, Moses was the one whom God was going to raise up after 400 years to be the mechanism that God would keep his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In due time, the Messiah would be born. Of all the promises in the scriptures of the coming Messiah, how many generations and centuries went by, the decimation in uh, Jerusalem, when they never thought that Jerusalem could ever fall, that the glorious temple of, Mo of, of Solomon, where God manifested his presence, the most holy place on earth, was the temple of Solomon. And yet, because of the unfaithfulness of the people, 
he sent a judgment, and Jerusalem was decimated. The great temple of Solomon destroyed. They had lost hope. Israel carried off, those that survived, carried off into captivity in Babylon. But God had promised there would be coming a Messiah, did he not? He promised there would be a restoration to the land. So, brethren, I, I don't care how bleak things may appear to you. When you look out onto the, uh, the landscape of our national <clears throat> environment and elections and things, we can get distraught. But there's no reason to get distraught ultimately because we know the prophetic promises of God. They will come to pass. And the scripture says, in the fullness of time, the Son of God was born. Now, last week I mentioned to you that that the promised Messiah must come from the physical line of David in order to inherit David's throne. That was the prophecy, that the Messiah would come from Solomon's line and would be a descendant of David and would sit on his throne forever. That was a promise. But we, we read in Jeremiah 22, 29 and 30, that because of the great sin of Jeconiah, which was one of Solomon's descendants, that God said that none of his descendants, Jeconiah, would ever sit on the throne of David. Period. Now, how does God work out to fulfill his prophecy, to circumvent this apparent roadblock of the Messiah to be from the line of David when you have this promise in the Scriptures that none of that man's descendants, Jeconiah's, would ever sit on the throne. I told you last week you had to wait a week to find out the answer. Well, you're going to find out the answer today. The right to David's throne did have to be transmitted through a male line. That's how kings came, from the male line. And prophecy indicates, does it not, that the Messiah would also have to be virgin born. And so how can Jesus get his legal right to the throne of David, and how can this apparent roadblock, because of Jeconiah's Sin be circumvented by the sovereign God. Well, to God, nothing is impossible, is it? And as Isaiah 9, 7, when it talks about this coming king, in that great promise in Isaiah 9, 7 that we'll look at a little bit later, it says, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform it. Nothing is too hard for God. In Matthew's account, in his lineage of the genealogy of Jesus, in Matthew's account, it goes back to Abraham through Joseph. Matthew is talking about the descent through the line of Joseph, Mary's husband. Now, Joseph is in the royal line from David and Solomon. 
However, Joseph was a descendant of David through Jeconiah. And we've already said, no male heir from Jeconiah would ever sit on the throne. But the scripture makes clear that in, especially if you look at verse 17 of Matthew 1, well, that's verse 16. And to Jacob was born Joseph, and it adds this, and it's very important, the husband of Mary, by whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. So, the scripture is affirming that Jesus was not through, he was not a descendant of David through Joseph as the fruit of, of his body, not through Joseph. However, Mary, the mother of Jesus, so happens to also be from the lineage of David. And Jesus, through his mother, Mary, is the literal fruit of the body of David, through his mother, Mary. However, While Mary is in the royal line, she is not the uh, regal lineage, meaning that the Messiah is said to to have to come through Solomon. Mary uh, was a descendant of David through a Nathan, not Solomon. The scripture says it had to be through Solomon's line. Well, so how does God manipulate all of these human events to fulfill prophecy. Well, here's how he does it. Jesus Christ obtains his literal descent from David as the fruit of David's body through his mother Mary, through that lineage. And by virtue of Mary's marriage to Joseph, Jesus was also the son of David. So Jesus obtained his legal right to the throne of David via his stepfather, Joseph. Joseph was Jesus' legal father. Hence, Jesus gets his legal right to the throne through Joseph even though Joseph was a descendant of Jeconiah. And through his mother Mary, he he gets to be the fruit of David's body. And that's how God works it out. And in that generation, some theologians have said, the only two people that could have married to make all of this happen was Joseph and Mary. And they just thought they were in love. And yet in all of these human events, and next week we'll take a look at all that God had to do to get Jesus born in Bethlehem and nowhere else. God will fulfill his prophecy. Now, Joseph had to be married to Mary Yet we're told that Joseph could not know, that is, have sexual relations with Mary, uh, and until Jesus, the scripture says, was born. 
for Jesus, what does the scripture say about prophesying? He had to be virgin born. We learn from our text in Matthew 1.18 that Mary was betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child by Holy Spirit. Now, she was betrothed to Joseph, but did not have any sexual relations with Mary, with Joseph. Yet, did you notice in verse 19, it says that Joseph is said already to be Mary's husband? you notice that? It refers to them as husband and wife in this betrothed state. We learn from verse 19 that Joseph, her husband, when Mary was found with child, did not want to publicly, being a righteous man, to disgrace her. So he decided he was going to privately, secretly put her away. Now, that term put away, that Greek word, as it's used in the, in the New Testament, it means to divorce. It means to give a certificate of divorce to. So what Joseph was seeking to do was to give Mary a secret uh, certificate of divorce and not make a public spectacle of the fact that she was with child. Now... <clears throat> We're going to alleviate a concern that you may have in this passage, and that concern possibly could be this, is that the fact that Joseph is said to be her husband, but had no sexual relations with her, but then in verse 24, notice what it says, and Joseph, after this dream, uh, that an angel came to them, was commanded to take her as his wife. Now, wait a minute. You go, time out. I thought it already said she was his wife. So why is it saying he decided to take her as his wife? It all goes into our understanding of a biblical betrothal and what that is involved. Now, we see here that Joseph, it says in verse uh, 24... It says that he was going to take her as his wife and keep her a virgin until after Jesus was born. Until after Jesus was born. Now, this is just one passage out of several in the scriptures. I don't know if you are aware of this, but Roman Catholicism believes that Mary remained a virgin her entire life. That's what Rome believes. And that when the Bible talks about the brothers and sisters of Jesus, they say it really means his cousins. Why does it have to mean his cousins? It was his brothers and sisters. Now, we need to understand a biblical betrothal in order to understand this section of Scripture. Because Joseph is said to be the husband of Mary, but then it says later he's going to take her as a wife. You go, which is it? Well... The thing about it is, a betrothal is similar to our modern idea of engagement, but it is not the same. So we could ask the the question, in Scripture, when a couple were betrothed, were they considered as husband and wife? And the answer is yes. When a couple was betrothed, they were considered in that culture as a husband and wife. 
and it had all this legal ramifications, and if you had terminated a betrothal, you had to give a certificate of divorce to the other party. It had financial ramifications. And so, in that regard, a betrothal was a legally binding marriage in one sense. In one sense, it was a legally binding marriage of a promise to be married. Scripture plainly says, does it not in our text, that Mary was Joseph's wife when they were betrothed. Now, lest anyone question whether a, a betrothed girl is a wife, we could not only use this passage affirm that, but <clears throat> turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20 and verse 7. You also see what it says here. And who is the man that is engaged, or really betrothed is the word there, to a woman and has not married her, let him depart and return to his house, lest he die in the battle, and another man marry her. So, he who has been betrothed a wife and has not taken her. What does that mean? She was his wife, but he had not taken her, had not had sexual relations with her. Yeah, that's what that means. Their marriage was not yet consummated. And uh, there's another passage in Deuteronomy 22, 23, and 24 that says, talks about a betrothed virgin as a neighbor's wife. So does the betrothed man, the question is now, is the betrothed man and woman, do they live together? And the answer was, in Hebrew society, no. They didn't live together. Yeah. They uh, all, mostly they stayed in their parents' home, both of them, and yet they were betrothed. It was customary among the Jews during uh, the betrothal period for the husband to leave or uh, to leave the husband and wife in the houses of their respective parents. And when the bridegroom had made proper preparations, that is, where. Will the husband and wife keep house, and where will they do, what will they do for work, and etc.? Then the bride was brought to his home, and thus the marriage was consummated. And so, <clears throat> how do we, why, how does the scripture say that Mary was Joseph's husband, and yet not married, but said to be his wife? By betrothal. And so, <clears throat> what did it, means here is a betrothal was a legal binding contract, but it did not give the parties sexual privileges. That's what a betrothal was. And so here we see that obviously, according to the word of God, that when if a any party and a woman was found to be pregnant in a betrothal situation, someone, the husband, the betrothed spouse would say, something's wrong here. I'm not the father of this child. And she could be executed for unfaithfulness. And Joseph knew he was not the father of this child that Mary has. And he says, but he didn't want to because he cared and loved her. He didn't want to publicly disgrace her. But he could have, but he didn't want to. He was going to put her away, that is, give her a legal divorce, terminating, and that was the only way they could terminate this betrothal. 
And the angel of the Lord appears to him in a dream and says, no, no. Something amazing has taken place. Actually, the first in human history of someone, of a human being being born where there is no human father had never happened before. And so the angel of the Lord says to Joseph, Joseph, don't put her away. That which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And so what we see here is that the angel assures Joseph that Mary is indeed a virgin and that the the child that is conceived is none other than the Messiah, long prophesied to come. Now let's understand who this Jesus is uh, when it says here that And he will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. He, that is the Messiah, Jesus, is the God-man. Jesus' father is the Holy Spirit. And Jesus' mother was a sinner, Mary. And he gets his human nature from his mother, Mary. But this is, there is no other person ever in human history like Jesus. You and I get a human nature from both our father and mother sinners, and we have problems to deal with sin, right? Jesus had a real human nature, but he has something that you and I don't. He was God in the flesh, he had a God nature. And this God nature oversaw, as it were, the human nature, so that in all of Jesus' thinking and actions, he never could sin. In theology, we call it the impeccability of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some of us ask the question, could Jesus have ever sinned, since the Bible says he was tempted in all ways like us, yet without sin, and the idea that you can be tempted... I allude to the fact that you could sin. Well, the truth here is, Jesus could not have sinned ever, period, because he was God. And that divine nature watched over his human nature. Now, in this regard, as I mentioned last week, the name Yeshua to which we derive the Latin word, Jesus, means he will certainly save us. That's what his name is. Now, that sort of sounds like it's predestined, right? He will save his people from their sins. Now, let me mention something else. Joseph and Mary They didn't pick out his name. They usually parents pick out. They have an authority. They have a privilege to pick out a name for a child. But not in this case. Because the angel of the Lord said, I'm going to tell you what you're going to name the child. Now you could say, well, there could be a 50-50 chance it could be a a male or female, right? Well, in human sense, yes. But there was no going to be 50-50. The Messiah had to be a male. 
And so the angel, the Lord says, this child that Mary's carrying, he is of the Holy Spirit, and he's no ordinary child. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God, and yet God of very God. And so when it says here that he will save his people from their sins, you know, one of the great truths set forth in the, if we may say, the five points of Calvinism, is the third point, that of limited or particular atonement. It means, now what do we mean by limited or particular atonement? It means that Christ has come to save a certain group of people, and only that group of people. And who is that group of people? The elect of God. Now what does our text say? The angel says, you shall call his name Jesus. You can't call him anything else, but you're going to call him Jesus. And his very name means he will save. It didn't say probably save, did it? It didn't say maybe save. It says he will save who? His people from their sins. This means that the elect of God, his people, will most certainly be saved. None can be lost, not one of them. No greater amount. Elsewhere in our confession of faith, it says the elect of God has been determined from the foundation of the world, and that number can neither be increased or diminished. It's a set number. Jesus came to save who? His people from their sins. Now, Arminianism maintains a view that Jesus' atonement opens up the possibility that some people might be saved. They, they, they couch it with the terms, the possibility that certain people might be saved. But they say that number is not predestined, and they, Arminianism also believes it is possible for the elect to be a genuine elect and then lose your salvation. Really? You see, why don't we just accept what the Scripture says? He will save his people from their sins. Not maybe. He will. Some have said, I've I've had my share of debates with those of another persuasion. I've talked about John 10 that says we are in his hand and um, we belong to the Father and no one can snatch us out of his hand. You know how they responded to that? Well, we can take ourselves out of his hand. Really? That's kind of pressing the text, isn't it? When it says no one can snatch it, that implies me. I can't take myself out either. So, Arminianism is deficient in its theology at this point. It robs God of his glory. It makes man the master of his own destiny. And it assaults the very atoning work of the Lord Jesus. Now, what does, again, Matthew one twenty one says? He will save his people from their sins. Now, turn with me to talk about, I just want to emphasize that we understand when it says he will save his people. 
I want, I want us to understand who his people are. Turn with me to John 6. And let's look at verses 36 through verse 40. Jesus is speaking here and he says, But I say to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Jesus says, everyone who my Father has given me will believe in me, and I will, I lose, what? Most, do I lose any of them? I don't lose any of them. None of them I lose. In fact, all the Father gives me, I will raise up on the last day. That means they make it to the end of glory, right? Isn't that not what was promised in the birth of Jesus? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He saves them from their sins. And he will raise them up to glory. And no one can pluck them out of Jesus' hands. You know, it's the most blessed thing to be found numbered among his people, his elect. What a comfort that the Lord God of heaven and earth sent his only begotten Son of God into this world to die for unworthy sinners like us. And he will. He saved us. As we sing in one of those popular hymns during the Christmas season, <clears throat> one of my favorite, I guess, uh, "Joy to the World." I mean, he comes to bring a remedy as far as the curse is found, and how far is that? Everywhere, but he remedies it. He is the Savior. He will bring it to pass. So, back in, in, in Matthew one twenty-two, notice what the Scripture says here. Now, all of this took place. What was spoken by the Lord through the prophet might be fulfilled. All of this incredible things of a person being born of a virgin and all of this and being the God-man was in order to fulfill Isaiah's Prophecy. There it says, verse 23, Behold, the virgin shall be with child, and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And that's just a succinct statement of Isaiah 9. I want us to turn to Isaiah 9, 7 and see all that it says here about this prophecy. And it's a glorious one. I want us to read Isaiah 9, beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. 
But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish in earlier times. He treated to the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Thou shalt multiply the nation, thou shalt increase their gladness. They will be glad in thy presence as with the gladness of harvest. As men rejoice when they divide the spoil, for thou shalt break the yoke of their burden, and the staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, is at the battle of Midian. Every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us. And before I go on to that, I want you to understand <clears throat> the land of Zebulun of Naphtali had been viewed with great contempt historically. And yet the prophecy says, from this land, from the other side of Jordan, from the Galilee of the Gentiles, a light shall come like no light has ever dawned in human history. I don't care how bad you thought it was in Zebulun and Naphtali. There is good news. Coming. And the good news is, verse 7, For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. It doesn't matter how dismal, it doesn't matter if this land was viewed with contempt, a child will be born that will be a light to the nations. And this child that will be born says on his shoulder. The government will rest. I wish a lot of Christians had understood this in the last election. Who really is the king? Who is the governor of the universe? This Jesus is, was born a king and is a king and is to be respected as a king in everything. And it says this king, there will be no end to the increases of his government. And as you and I already know from our study in 1 Corinthians, this Jesus is presently reigning from the Father's right hand. This child that was born was born a king and is a king, and he will defeat all his enemies as a king. And so this prophecy of Isaiah, as Matthew says, that his name shall be called Emmanuel, meaning God with us. Though Jesus is the son of David, he is David's Lord. Remember Jesus said that the Pharisees and scribes couldn't understand that. And Jesus said, you want to explain to me how, how the Messiah is the son of David, and yet David called him his Lord? 
And it says they thought about it and decided they would never ask him another question again. Because he was the fruit of David's body, and yet he was Emmanuel at the same time. He is God with us. And any belief that Jesus is not fully God in the flesh is heretical. In fact, brethren, you have to believe this in order to be a Christian. You have to believe that in Jesus is God in the flesh. Now, why do I say that the Bible maintains that? I want you to turn over with me to 1 John chapter 2. And let's start reading at verse 18. Children, it is the last hour, and just as you heard, the Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have arisen. From this we know it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not really of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are all not of us. Sort of getting the point to us if they're not part of them. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Now, what do you know? I have not written to you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it and because no lies of the truth. Who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. The one who denies the Father and the Son. Whoever denies the Son does not have the Father. The one who confesses the Son has the Father also. As for you, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you will abide in in the Son and in the Father. Now, who is it that left the church? But the Antichrist. Notice, plural. See, we have been taught in certain sections that there is one Antichrist that will be raised up sometime between the rapture of the church and the second coming and things like this. That's all fiction. You know, the only place where Antichrist is found is in the book of 1 John. It's the only place it's found. And it says there are many Antichrists. And the, the Bible defines us who is the Antichrist. All those that don't like Jesus, who hate Jesus. All those who deny what? That Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, the Messiah. Now, what did Matthew say that this child that Mary was carrying was to be called? Emmanuel, God with us. And everybody who is anointed from the Holy One, meaning God, the Holy Spirit, everybody who is of the Holy Spirit understands this. They understand that Jesus is no ordinary person. Jesus is the God-man. He is God in the flesh. 
in any view that <clears throat> denigrates the idea in any shape or form that Jesus is fully God in the flesh is contrary to the Word of God and doesn't have the anointing of the Holy Spirit. We had a candidate running for president who was a Mormon. I rem- who, by the way, Mormonism is anti-Trinitarian. It, it, it is the modern-day version, not the only one, of Arianism. Arianism was the ancient heresy that taught that the Son of God had a beginning. After all, a father always precedes the son, right? So the son had to have a beginning. And for a while, that view was dominating the Christian church. And Arianism was decimating the Christian church. Led to the Council of Nicaea. But Constantine himself vacillated between the two. He was an Arian at one point and then decided not. After... At the council, he was convinced in one way or the other. And even after uh, Arius was condemned, you still had uh, a large section of professing Christianity believing that Jesus was the Son of God, like in a human sense. He really wasn't God. And then you had what was called Athanasius arise. And Athanasius was one of the bishops that did battle with the Arians. And he got to the point where Athanasius was by himself virtually in the known Christian world. And someone said, well, Athanasius, you're by yourself. And Athanasius made the famous statement that Athanasius contramundum, Latin, that Athanasius is against the world. And yet, and finally, the church came to its senses and realized, no, that Jesus is fully God. In the Council of Chalcedon, in, I think it's 451, they affirmed the deity of the Son and the human nature in one person. I can remember talking with a, uh, a, a relative-in-law who was a Mormon, and he said, what is the problem you have with this, John? I said, I'll tell you the problem. You don't believe that Jesus is fully God. He says, what's the problem with that? I said, a lot. And, he, and I gave him a book that explained it, and he wrote back, and here's what he said to me. He says, John, I appreciate that. I read the book. I just don't agree with it. He says, after all, being number two isn't all that bad, meaning that Jesus is not God in the flesh. Not fully God. You know, the scripture talks about the only begotten of the Father. We talk about in theology the eternal begottenness of the Son. If you notice in the Nicene Creed what it says, and it's, it's good, when it says this. It says concerning the, the Son... <clears throat> And we believe in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all worlds, so this only Son is God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. We must not think of the Son of God in the same way we think of a father's son. It is not the same. He is eternally begotten. 
The Son has always existed. Now, do you fully understand that? I don't understand that. But it doesn't matter, does it? What matters is what the Scripture says. He's the eternally begotten one. There was never a time when the Son was not. He has always been very God of very God. And you, as a Christian, you know that in your heart if you're a genuine believer. You know that in your heart. I didn't grow up. You've heard my testimony before. I didn't grow up in the church. My understanding of the Bible was dismal. I mean dismal because I wasn't in the church at all. I was an agnostic. But when the Lord came to me in saving grace, a lot of things automatically came to mind. I knew that Jesus was who he was. Now, who taught me that? It wasn't my past training in the church. It was the Holy Spirit. This Jesus is God. Really and truly. I believe that from the heart. And that's what the Scripture promises. You have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. Every born-again Christian knows in their heart that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. So as we end, I want us to understand prophecy. If there is anything that shows predestination, it's prophecy. Every prophecy will come to pass. And as Matthew says, the birth of Jesus, the most unbelievable, the the only birth like this in the history of the, the world that that will ever be, happened so that it might be fulfilled what Isaiah says. It is going to happen. It is going to happen. And what we need to take comfort in is that our Jesus has come, our Savior has come, he has, was born as a king. He is a king, and he has saved us once and for all. And as Jesus said, he will raise us up one day to glory. We have much to be thankful for, much to be comforted in. Unless we lose hope of the state of affairs around us, all the prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. There will come a day when the knowledge of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. It will happen. It will happen. It will happen. God promised it, and it will come to pass. And nobody can stop it. Hallelujah. Let's pray.